Because God's Word in its entirety is an intricately interwoven tapestry with Christ Jesus as its central figure. Yes, from Genesis on. It can be difficult to know where to break into the narrative to begin a study of the last things. But since I've argued for the inaugural event of the eschaton being Christ's first advent, that is Bethlehem, we'll begin there. Now, first you'll want to refer to the accompanying chart, the church age. And Adam's on the ball, he's got it up there. Now note, please note one feature of the charts. Instead of including, you know, I started out long ago, and I've had in my possession for a long time, handmade charts from guys back, I think the latest was back in the 60s. Um, where they were, they was hand drawn, and he hand wrote in uh, scripture references in the chart. And it's really, it really clutters up the chart. So what I've done is put those references down below as footnotes. So in some charts, you'll see a little number up it by something and that goes to the one don't you hate to see a asterisk or something and there's nothing at the bottom how irritating that is <clears throat> uh, and not only is there a corresponding number or title on some charts but they're also the same color the colors match up not all charts have those but most do Now, approximately 33 years after his incarnation in Bethlehem, Christ is crucified. Maybe I should make reference before I see a hand. Circa 4 B.C. I assume somebody might have a problem with that. Some even say 6 B.C. By our calendar, that would be the time. Christ was not born in zero. It was probably... Uh, around 4 B.C. C means circa, about. Christ is crucified, and a uh, a few days after that, He is resurrected from the dead. Then for about a month and a half, Jesus appears to and speaks with different individuals and groups before ascending to the Father. Jesus was arrested on the first night of Passover. Passover. Fifty days later, the Jews celebrated the day of Pentecost, or day of first fruits, or feast of weeks. Over time, over the decades, over the centuries, those were kind of compressed into one. Nevertheless, it's based on law. Let's turn, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16, who's, where does the mic go? <clears throat> mic, mic, got a mic. There we go. 
Deuteronomy 16, let's read verses 9 to 10. Deuteronomy 16, 9 and 10. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. Later in the first century, the day was celebrated as the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, why? Oh, nobody takes notes anyway, it doesn't matter. Later in the first century, the day was celebrated as the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, why, why do I bring this up? Well, it's, I love the, the irony, the poetic irony, that God chose to send the Holy Spirit to inaugurate the church era on the very day Jews celebrated the giving of the Mosaic Law. Turn please to Acts chapter 2. Where's Acts? Is that still in the New Testament? Acts Acts 2. Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. When, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, to be clear, the Holy Spirit had ministered on earth before. There was nothing new about that. What was new was that now he was going to be in each believer permanently. That's what was new. Now, this is theology on which individuals may disagree that the church, church, the church universal, the Catholic, small c Catholic church began in Acts 2 with the giving of the Holy Spirit. That is a dispensational position. And yes, we're finally going to talk about dispensationalism. It's a dispensational position for different from some, we see Israel as separate and distinct from the Christian church. Till the end of time, to put it succinctly just for the moment, during the last things, Israel and Christians play different roles and are treated by God in different ways. As stated in our church's articles of faith regarding the millennial period. Now this paragraph I'm about to read from has lots of scripture references. I'm not going to read all those. You can look at those on your own. This this is from our article of faith. This 1,000 year period has its foundation 
in the great unconditional covenants of the Old Testament, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and the New Covenant. Note that the New Covenant references Jeremiah. Christ will be the king of this millennial or Davidic kingdom with the nation Israel occupying an exalted position within that kingdom. And more on this when we study the millennium. Of course, we believe the church, the redeemed in Christ, will have been removed from earth at the rapture, returning then with Christ when He comes in judgment. Thus, the New Testament church is not to be lumped together with the Old Testament Jewish believers by faith. For example, Abraham. Nor do we say that the church represents the, quote, new Israel, end quote. The two are and remain separate. That is perhaps the key aspect of the dispensational position, especially for our study. So, the dispensational position. Before we get too far along in this study of the last things, second screen, please, Adam. It's time to include a bit more about dispensationalism. So look at the second chart, dispensations. I will make every effort to limit the discussion to only those aspects pertinent to our study. This is a... a Dispensationalism is a subject deeper than I'm comfortable with. And that, as is almost always the case in Christianity and the church, there are congregations that have just run wild with it. Now, even though I will try to limit this, for many of us this may be relatively new and rather detailed information, but we must include it because it plays an important role in not just what happens in the eschaton, but why and to whom, especially regarding Israel. We get a general definition a summary of dispensational theology from an essay written by Michael J. Vlock, professor of theology at the Master's Seminary and an expert on the nation of Israel and issues related to refuting the doctrine of replacement theology. Replacement theology, that's the theology that says that the church replaces Israel. It's an errant Doctrine. It's a wrong doctrine that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. Here's what Vlock writes. Dispensationalism is an evangelical theological system that addresses issues concerning the biblical covenants, Israel, the church, and end times. It also argues for a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies involving ethnic-slash-national Israel and the idea that the church is a New Testament entity that is distinct from Israel. Now, if you want to dig further than we will in this class, I highly recommend this book. It's in the bookstore here. 
I'm guessing it's not terribly expensive. Um, but this is by the same guy, Michael J. Vlock. Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths. And he really lays it out. says what's true, what's false, what is, what is falsely being said about dispensationalism. Very good book. It was very informative for me. So the whole idea is that, you know, frankly, it was, came as a surprise to me that supposedly there, that there, are, there is a doctrine out there that Old Testament prophecies, everything promised to, the old, to Israel in the Old Testament was simply shadow, simply type for what God was really going to do, fulfill in the church. I mean, silly me, I took God's word at His word that, well, He promised it to Israel, why wouldn't He give it to Israel? And that's Vlock's position. Now, in Webster's Second College Edition of the Dictionary definition number seven for the word dispensation is, quote, the ordering of events under divine authority. At its root, dispensationalism says that God has worked in different ways in a number of distinct time periods or epochs, dispensations, in human history. So we see, for example, the Edenic dispensation, time of innocence that starts. We are now in the church age, the dispensation of grace. For one obvious example that we can easily understand, there was the legal dispensation, the law, Moses to Christ, where Israel was under the law, during which God said that to be righteous or right with God, to be obedient to God, one must follow the precepts handed down in the Mosaic law, of which man, of course, utterly failed. That's the point. That was why the law, to show how incapable man is to obey it. We need grace. After this, however, there was the dispensation of grace, or the church age in which we are presently, during which righteousness is determined not by obeying the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, please note this. God does not change. None of this about dispensationalism, the different epochs in time, the different dispensations, God doing things a little differently for different people. God does not change. And dispensationalism affirms that salvation has always been by grace through faith alone. Period. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the law, the Pentateuch, 
you see that there's no salvation there. It was just obedience to God. No salvation. No promise of eternal life with God. Yet, Genesis 15.6, quote, Then Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. End quote. That was before the law. What made Abram righteous? He believed. Faith in what God was telling him. But throughout the history of man, God has initiated different covenants or agreements for different people at different times. All is part of His plan, and it's my personal view. I, I can't be... What's the word I want? Thank you. Dogmatic. I knew somebody would know it. You got in before Linda. That's good. She was ready, though. It was on her lips. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this. It's just my personal view. I mentioned it to Pastors Daniel and Jeremy, and they just looked at me stone-faced, so I don't know how they... But it's my personal view that God does not see things in dispensations or epics. He just sees His tapestry beginning at point A and going on. He planned it all the way. God's Word says that before time even began, He had the end all worked out. It was all mapped out. Done. So, I don't think God sees all of this, these different things. That's, that's for our benefit, to, read, to, to understand it, to understand His plan, to put it together. His purpose, His goal has never changed. His plan for the salvation of man has never changed. From the beginning, it was always pointed to Christ's kingdom. That's it. Now, the classic number of dispensations has always been seven. For beginning with innocence or Edenic dispensation, which was Adam before the fall, conscience or antediluvian, that is before the flood, Dispensation that would be Adam to Noah. Third, human government or post diluvian after the flood dispensation that would be Noah to Abraham. Number four, promise or patriarchal dispensation Abraham to Moses. Fifth is law or legal dispensation Moses to Christ. Sixth is grace or ecclesiastical dispensation, Pentecost to the the rapture. That's where we are now. And seven, kingdom or messianic dispensation. That would be the millennium. Not all dispensationalists agree on the number and all need not agree. It's not important. In my chart of the dispensations, I've listed eight. In my generative cycles, the next chart, I have added creation as a subdivision to the first innocence dispensation. doesn't really matter. If you're caught up in it that far, you've gone too far. 
you've missed the point. Now, dispensationalism is not synonymous with pre-tribulationalism or premillennialism. But the three are often associated with each other. Most, but not all, dispensationalists believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. We believe the rapture of the church is described, for example, by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 4, but we'll look at that in our next session. There are two key passages in God's Word that pre-tribulationalists reference for their position. Today, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians one verses nine to ten. We need a mic. Got I'm just one. waiting for it to come on. There oh, you go. Okay. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Ah, there's the punchline. The word translated wrath is orge in the Greek, meaning anger, indignation, vengeance, punishment. Our position is that those in Christ... Redeemed, sanctified, justified saints will not and cannot suffer that. Why would God do that to those justified, sanctified in Christ? Second one, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, verse 10. Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth, the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, as I've tried to do while preparing this, I thought, okay, who's going to ask? What questions are they going to ask? I've got to have answers for those. I'm sure I will fail in that. But I did anticipate one. Revelation 2.10 says, you will have tribulation. End quote. Well, that speaks of a briefer time of persecution and imprisonment for members of the church in Smyrna. It isn't, does not refer to the tribulation. Now, we should have time if you have questions before we're done. Let me touch on just a few points as we wrap this up. Regarding issue, uh, regarding Israel, 
As mentioned earlier, there are some who claim that the Christian church replaces Israel as God's chosen people. Many non-dispensationalists hold that the Old Testament as a whole is comprised of types and shadows of greater New Testament realities. I've mentioned this before. In line with this idea, some assert that that national Israel in the Old Testament functioned as a type of the New Testament church. Dispensationalists believe that Israel's Israel. What God promised them, He promised them, not us. There's no reason to spiritualize Israel in the Old Testament. What arrogance. They're His chosen people. They they will enjoy an exalted position during certain periods of time on future earth after today. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's, divi- it's divided to the extent that it makes me kind of wonder. It makes me a little uneasy a little bit. Uh, I'm hoping that further study will iron this out. But my grandfather was a Jew. Where am I going to be? What, what, you know, I'm a member of the church. But my grandfather, there's, there's some Jewish blood in me. Now, I don't think God has a problem with that. I don't think I'm going to be subdivided. <laughs> he can lop some off. That would be just fine. <laughs> but it gets a little tricky. It gets a little complicated. Well, does that mean they, they go to the synagogue every week? Or they go to the temple every week? And what is it? You know, it's, but clearly, in God's Word, when we take God's Word for what it says not for how we want to spiritualize it. Clearly, Israel has an important role during the last things. The church plays an important role during the last things. Dispensationalists believe that God's Word clearly differentiates between the two. And that God's promises made to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel during the last things. And I, it seems to me I mentioned this before, but I love how Michael Flock puts this succinctly. Quote, God keeps His promises to those whom the promises were made. If He promised the church, if He promised Christians something, we want Him to give it to us, not somebody else. Why would he shortchange his chosen people, Israel? We'll look at this in greater depth when we get to the millennium, by extension, the tribulation. For Israel will play a vital role during those periods. Now, the third chart. No, not yet. Stop. The dispensations chart, the one that's up. During the sessions of this class, I do not intend to walk you through every minute detail of each chart. I've always been a little edgy in classes where we have an open book and he's reading paragraphs to me. I can read that on my own. Just get away from me. Uh, 
I invite you, I encourage you, I plead with you. At home, work through these passages down in the footnotes. That's where the good stuff is. Forget about the pretty picture up above. It's when you trace it through Scripture, that's where, whoa, you read that and say, my goodness. That's where the really neat stuff is. And I leave that to you to do that. We're not going to do that in class. That's not laziness on my part. It's my view that it will be to your benefit to work through those details and references yourself. That's in that personal discovery and realization will be found much of the fascination and joy of this topic that I've already been blessed to experience. The body of this chart is self-explanatory. There's really no point in assigning dates or in most cases even a precise length to the individual, individual dispensations. The true wonder and depth of the dispensations is found in the references below that accompany each epoch. For almost every dispensation is inaugurated or at least associated with a declaration or an agreement, a covenant established by God himself with either an individual or a people. Spend some time on your own reading through these passages to obtain a picture of how the Lord God has generously yet righteously moved His will and purpose through the generations from Adam to those who will dwell with Him in the new Jerusalem of the new heaven and new earth. Now, the third, third one, Adam. The generative cycles chart. For me, the value of the generative cycles chart is in how it visualizes the eternal structure and order of God's economy for man in Christ. I'll tell you, you get this when reading through God's Word from beginning to end, but you also get it from a study like this. Our God is true genius. He's amazing. All this was worked out before time began. And how even if one, if one breaks it down as I have in the three aspects, generational, dispensational, and believers, there's continuity. It all makes sense. It all tracks. And again... We won't take the time here to digest every component of the chart, but it'd be well worth your time to sit down with it on your own, examining each column downward, get the sense of that. Then after you've got that, then go across. There's the genius across, where it starts in creation and ends up with us and so on. That's where it's fascinating. It all speaks to the genius of the Godhead and how this world and its destiny under God in Christ were created in a poetic symmetry. It not only makes sense, it not only tracks, but it's beautiful. It's exquisite.
Now, I'd like to close by reading the history of the beginning of the church. Follow along with me. Let's start. Let's read Acts 2. Acts 2, let's begin reading in verse... There's no microphone, don't worry. I got one. Where's that? Where's 2? Okay, 2. This, these Bibles keep getting smaller print with every passing year. Verse 41. So then... Those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 3, souls. They were continually... Do you want, this is a picture of the church. This is what we're supposed to look like. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You see that? You get that? When the church is the church, people like it. They want to be part of that. They find favor. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I have one of my few remaining relatives who is a, a lay preacher in a church. And in a conversation one time, he asked me, what? You know, what can we do? The, the church is dying. Nobody's coming. There's just, it's an old church, old people. They're all dying. There's no young people. There's nothing. He, he keeps trying, he, and he explained to me all these different programs. And he said, okay, if we do this, this after-school program, and if we do this program and this program, and it doesn't seem to be working. You know what? And I, I said, preach the Word. Then they'll come. The church is described here listening to the apostles' teaching, listening to the Word, listening to the Gospel. Do that and you'll, they'll find favor and they'll come. We hold that the end of the dispensation of grace the closing of the church age will come when Christ Jesus returns for His church at the rapture. Just before the tribulation. Because we will not see that wrath. 
that will be a hideous time to be on earth. We don't want to see it. And I, from God's Word, I do not see any reason why God would inflict that on us. That is His judgment on sin in this world. And the rapture will be the topic of our next session. Now, we have time. Any thoughts? Any questions? Clarification. Complaints. Just a thought about, I know there are thousands of Messianic Jews right now, and, uh, you know, just something to think about, um, how they relate, obviously, they're believers in Christ, the Messiah, that he is the Messiah, and then when, uh, during the, well, soon there's going to be, you know, in the um, tribulation, there's going to be many that turn to Christ, um, and they're going to look on him who they pierced. But at the end, in heaven, we're not, I don't believe we'll be separated from the believing Jews. We'll be all there. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and we're going to be dwelling with them together. It's just that how God related in his plan for the Jewish people is a little different. But we're all going to end up at the same place, worshiping God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The different uses for Israel and the church have to do mostly with the tribulation and the millennium. Because that, especially during the millennium, that will be Christ ruling on earth. He will be on his throne on this earth. And the church, during the tribulation, the church will be gone. And I contend the spirit will be gone. So, as bad as things are now, can you imagine what it'll be like during the tribulation? Whoa! Nobody wants to live through that. But during the millennium, Israel plays a role. And it'll, they have already been promised in the Old Testament that they will rule, they will govern the nations under Christ. Anything else? Come on, we got time. Yes, ma'am, you're welcome. There's more to come. I thank the church for being willing to print them. I have a very good printer, but I'm too cheap to pay for the factory issued cartridges, so it comes out looking bad. So I, we did it here. Anything else before we close? Yeah. Ladies first. I had a question about... um, So in the latter part of the tribulation, so that would be the great tribulation, excuse me, it is the Jews who are on the earth who... um, Remain. I mean, they're there. They're saved. This is all Israel will be saved. And they're the ones who are giving the testimony for God because the church has already been raptured. Is that correct? The overall answer to that, I would say, is yes, but stay tuned. Okay, so a follow-up question is, 
if the Holy Spirit is gone now, will not the Holy Spirit indwell those Jewish believers? Good question. And I don't have an answer to that yet. Okay. I'll give you a couple weeks. Thank you. (laughs) Make a note. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, sir. Would you be willing to expound in Revelation 3 the condition of perseverance? You know, I think of perseverance of the saints, perseverance of daily confessing our sins so that we can be. Right? I just want to, I want to clarify your question first. That isn't regarding the last things. It isn't regarding the end times. You, you want to talk about the... Okay. The part you had us read, Revelation 3. Mm-hmm. What, what 3.10. 3.10, right. It says, you have kept the word... And the aspect of perseverance in that verse. Clarification you want to do on that? As I understand perseverance, which happily is in line with what this church believes, is that when the when God's word uses the word translated perseverance. It doesn't mean gritting your teeth and doing the best job you can, hoping that you'll make it. No. If, If an individual is in Christ, you will persevere. He sees to that. Time and again in Scripture, and if I had the youthful brain of Greg, I would, could give you chapter and verse. I can't. I'm sorry. Those days. I don't think I ever had those days, but if I did, they're gone. Um, but it says, He will hold us. He will make sure we get through. So if you are a believer in Christ, if you have His Spirit in you, you will persevere. If you don't persevere, you weren't His. Does that clarify? Okay. Anything else? Or can anybody do a better job on that than me? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom he justified, speaking of the rapture, he also glorified. 
Yes. Thank you, Jim. What? I mean, those are good. Oh, it was on the other side of the page. That's why I didn't. If I had seen that, I would have read it. What then shall we say to these things? I thought he was going to go. You know, Paul does go on. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him forever, him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation... Well, there's an interesting word. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword... For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, he did go on. See, that's why I didn't read it. God's amazing. His Word is amazing. And His plan for us is breathtaking. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. Father God, we thank You for Your Word, for the gift of it, for entrusting it to us. We thank You for Your Spirit who translates it for us and illumines it so we can, in our poor fleshly minds, can understand it. And we thank You for superintending this class so that we get it right. The truth. Thank You for being the God You are and for loving us. In Jesus' name, Amen.